Nutrition is remarkable in its ability to have people with completely opposite views saying they have science to support completely opposite views. Frustrating, isn't it? What are we supposed to believe? In this training of the MOVE driver of the five pillars of a dynamic health, I'm going to debunk the myth in exercise physiology. You know, the myth that if you work out for an hour or two a day that you're golden? Let me ask you something. Would you eat one meal a day and skip the rest of the meals? And what would happen if you did that? You'd be deficient in your nutrition and nutrients and vitamins and minerals, right? You'd get sick. Now, do that for 20, 40, 60 years of your life. See where I'm going? You can't only do exercise for an hour and then sit or stand in a static and immobile sedentary position all day long. That is killing us. Again, like everything else in science, we all disagree. So I'm going to give you my perspective of human movement, not rat and animal based, but human movement and how it relates to you. Not the rat, not the animal, you. And there's a difference, guys. But first, we have to discover the origin of human movement. And that leads us to dynamism biohack, the beginning of movement. Dynamism is the enthusiastic quality or charism that dynamic people possess that characterizes them by their vigorous action and progress. They step outside that it's genetic cliche, the blame it, name it, and tame it with a drug approach into what I call true health. This is the health class your doctor doesn't know, the wellness prevention and health promotion solution, how to get and stay well for a lifetime. That's dynamism. Anthropologists rely on a variety of fossil, archaeological, genetic, and linguistic clues to kind of reconstruct how people populated or, you know, moved around about in the world. And Sir Arthur Keith, he is a Scottish anatomist and anthropologist, and he was a leading figure in the study of human fossils. He later became the president of the Royal Anthropological Institute. And Keith was, he's put in charge of this treasury of artifacts that were kept safe in the Museum of the Royal College of Surgeons. And it was the exposure to these fossils that enabled a shift in his interest from anatomy to the machinery of human evolution. And the world will ever be grateful. Well, Sir Keith was one of the first anthropologists who discover the earliest homo sapiens to our more modern scientific techniques. We've advanced our understanding of human movement patterns by looking at the fossils of skulls, even the artifacts and DNA, the culture, and even looking into language. So how did our ancestors' physique look like, for example, right? How, how often did they move? How much energy did they spend? And the answer to this became apparent with the differences after the agriculture revolution. See, science demonstrated, they think, that a, a small tribe in the Middle East, they say somewhere around you know 10,000 years BC, 
where they got rid of their, they discarded their hunter-gatherer lifestyle and began domesticating animals and cultivating plants in a manner similar to farming. So this Middle Eastern tribe became revolutionaries as science labeled them the first people to plant, the first people to plant seeds of agriculture. And so doing that, they began following a lifestyle pattern that was different than all other prior humans. So what started as a rebel way of life in the Middle East was ultimately adopted around the globe and eventually drove the hunter-gatherer lifestyle almost into extinction, right? Say for a few isolated tribes in the Amazon rainforest and on the Andaman Islands in the Bay of Bengal, unmodernized hunter-gatherer societies barely exist. And ironically, as the last of the hunter-gatherer's cultures became endangered, modern science is coming to understand the importance of this lifestyle to the health of all humans. You know, we want to tap into that inner aborigine. See, researchers determined that it must have been what you know what what it was like to live back in that day and to survive in the wild and it would require massive energy expenditure, right? And on a daily basis for just requisite activities such as hunting game and foraging for water, the social interaction and dealing with the predatorial stress and even gathering food. So to survive in the wild back then would have been very stressful, right? Again, how, how accurate these dates are really don't matter. We're not concerned here how long human civilization has lived. What we need to take home from this data is that this way of life represents the pattern of our physical activity regime for which our genome remains adapted. And accordingly, humans are highly capable of performing the great diversity of physical activity required for a hunting and gathering food in the wild. And again, the reason we need to tap into our inner aborigine and live like a wild human in a civilized world. So the profound and progressively wider discordance between the current day physical activity and the indigenous homo sapiens activity has resulted in atrophy, disability, and disease in the Western world, hasn't it? So accordingly, the original model of hunter-gatherer's daily physical regime could serve as an ideal genetic template for the ideal exercise and nutritional program for humans today. So let me continue with this with our uh, with this discussion. I I make my case that following data derived from humans is always better than the most expensive science extrapolated from rats and animals. After all, rat science is evidence-based science. It is neither the most accurate evidence nor is it based on real evidence for human beings. Again, that is the purpose for this program and the bulk of the reason experts have conflicting opinions when we use rat and animal science to defend their theories for humanity. Keep in mind, it ain't even human. Hardly any of it, at least. At any rate, I want to get back to what we know from human studies, you know, the origin. 
And science went from digging ancient human fossils and analysis of skull size to predict the size of the human brain to DNA analysis to provide clues to the modern Homo sapien. And we've concluded that a more accurate description of how humans were designed to move is better achieved with human data as opposed to the science of rats and attempting to extrapolate that data to humans. In other words, you and I are much smarter about listening to television and experts recommending nutrition and physical exercise based on rat science. It is far from accurate and the reason why so many doctors and scientists disagree. And look, if you like this training you're getting, please click that like button, punch that wow button or that love button, click that share button so that other people that you know and love may benefit from this training. So it's much better to recommend nutrition and exercise patterns for humans based on human data. And so far, I've pre pre you know, pre presented a little bit of evidence so far to back up this point, but how do we know about how movement shaped the human brain? And what is the relationship between movement and the human brain? In modern neuroscience, we find an answer to that question. And dealing with the difficult issues about the brain is no trivial task. At some point in your life, most of us have asked this question. At least I have. Why do humans, you know, and other species, have a brain? And did you know that not all species on planet Earth have brains? You know, we used to think that, but they don't. Dr. Dan Wolpert recently spoke at a TED and he gave an answer to this question. He, he talked about our unique ability to perceive the world as human beings and our capacity to think, which makes us remarkably different than any other species on planet Earth. And so most people believe that perception and thought are the reason we have a brain. But Dr. Wolpert would strongly disagree. And he says it's obvious why humans possess a brain. And he what he says, he says this. He says, we have a brain for one reason and one reason only. That is to produce adaptable and complex movements. And there's no other reason to have a brain. Now, when I use the word movement, what do you think about? You're thinking about exercise, you're thinking about walking, you're thinking about moving your arms and limbs. But in our discussion of movement, it gets at the cellular level. A new science called mechanobiology. I'm not going to get into that here. But through these teachings and trainings, we're going to touch on some of that. But it, listen, if we can contemplate this just for a moment, we realize that movement is everywhere and essential for life. The impulse of life goes through movement and the contraction of muscles. Humans' ability to speak, write, use gestures, and even use sign language are mediated through our contractions of muscle, through movement. Even our sensory modalities, memory, and cognitive processes either drive or suppress future movements. There's no evolutionary or adaptive advantage in laying down old memories of childhood or perceiving the color of a butterfly if it does not affect the way 
you're going to move later in life. If you're skeptical of this argument, Dr. Wolpert is a British medical doctor, neuroscientist, and engineer. He's got outstanding contributions in computational biology. And in our next Dynamism Biohack, I'm going to explain why Dr. Wolpert, well, he would have this to say. He'd say, now, for those of you who do not believe this argument, we have trees and grass on our planet without the brain. But the clinching evidence is this animal here, the humble sea squirt. See, the sea squirt is an immature, undeveloped, basic form of an animal. It has a nervous system and swims around in the ocean in its juvenile life. And the sea squirt has a fascinating story to tell. It begins its life as an egg and develops into a tadpole-like creature, complete with a spinal cord down to the tail. The sea squirt has a brain that helps it wiggle its tail to locomote through the water. Now, the interesting thing is, its mobility does not last for long. See, once it finds a suitable home, it attaches itself and never moves again. And after it implants itself to its home, it slowly digests its brain and nerve system for food. In other words, the lesson of the sea squirt teaches something marvelous to science. Because once you do not need to move, you don't need a brain. And in the next show, we're going to dive deep into the ocean and examine Dr. Wolpert's explanation of the sea squirt. Until next time, I'm Dr. Matt Hammett, inviting you to lighten up, move better, and live fuller. Until next, Dynamism Biohack.